Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Thank you for joining us today. We got some fun ahead of us this hour. I've got Sam on the line with me from Missouri. Uh, Sam, holding over from the last hour, and thank you for your patience. You were in the middle of a point. So we're talking about uh, reality, and specifically how, um, in in the name of inclusion for gender identity issues, I guess the the expectation is that we're not supposed to acknowledge reality, but to play along. Is that yeah. is that an unfair characterization? I think where they want us to go, and uh, I got news. If I'm going to, um, if they're going to expect somebody uh, to um, identify them by their proper gender, you know, in some nations they're trying to pass laws where you can actually uh, be fined for doing that. I'm saying, well, first of all, if you're going to go around posing some weird gender, I can't see anyway. I'm a blind guy, so you know, I just have to go by what I hear. So forget that. But so so I have part, to ask, have you ever misgendered someone based no, on the sound of their voice? <laughs> no, but knowing the kind of nonsensical kind of guy that I am, I would be the first one to just, you know, probably just, you know, the first time they threw that at me and start throwing a fit about it, I'd, I'd be the first one out there telling them, oh, quit being a victim, quit whining, you know. We used to have winos in the forms of drunks. Now we have different kind of winos. Um, <laughs> well, and anyway. you know, I I have to admit, there there's a certain discomfort, you know, when when I'm around a transgender individual, um, it's it's not the most comfortable thing because it's it's clear, okay, this is this is someone who very outwardly is, uh, you know, is is making a statement, but at the same time, I, I had the privilege earlier this year of of uh, meeting a transgender individual, and actually Eric Mutsos, who does the show on, on Monday afternoons here on the Loving Liberty Network, as well as uh, myself, attended a, a Better Angels workshop, and, and Tisha was one of the people who we met with. And I mean, I'm sitting right next to Tisha all day long in this workshop, and Tisha uh, is a former Marine, tatted up. I mean, to, to say that, uh, you know, Tisha has, has masculine features is to, to, like, say, the the Arctic can be a little cold at certain times of the year. But in sitting down and actually talking with this individual, uh, I came to find out that uh, Tisha was really a very decent person and with a great love of liberty, which I was like, okay, well, you know what? <laughs> if we can agree on that, I'm sure we can work out whatever other differences we had. But most importantly, she didn't see herself as a victim. Yeah, that's different, you know, because usually the ones that don't see themselves as victims are not going to be the ones flaunting it at you. Just like there's, there are some homosexuals out there as a perfect example who just want to live their lives. They don't want to be in the spotlight. They don't want to be. And that's all I'm simply saying. Just just live. Live your life. You know, what you do, you know, what you do in your private time, <clears throat> I don't want to know. You know, I mean, that's really what it boils down to or or what your gender preferences are and all that kind of stuff. You know, I, I where I have a problem are these people who come forth though and say, I'm this and I'm that and you better like it. 
you you're, you're going to ha- have to like it, or you're going to have to acknowledge it, or you know, or the, or they will throw the weight of the law behind it in some countries. You know, that's where I draw the line. No, I don't have to do anything. I except go to the bathroom, eat, and sleep, and and uh, try to uh, get through life, uh, making my way through life, and treating others the way. You know, I try to treat everybody fairly, but I'm not going to have somebody bully me over it. You know, I mean, it. You know, it's like I say, quit whining. You know, is my attitude on the whole thing. I have very, I have a very, very short patience with whiners, and uh, that's what I see with a lot of this stuff that's going on. But what I was, the point I was making earlier in the in the first hour was that uh, I think a lot of this transgenderism, while there are some people out there who may have issues. To, uh, perhaps that they were raised in a bad environment, which, you know, my attitude is, you know, you need to seek some help. But there are others who sometimes, in very rare cases, will be born with strange anomalies, hormonal issues and stuff. I, I get that. But it's a lot more rare than we're being uh, led to believe, in my opinion. And what I see now, and this is where we're going to have to start deciding where we draw the line, we're gradually being drugged down the slippery slope to accepting more and more deviancy until we get down to the point where the pedophilia folks will be in the in the limelight and they will be demanding acceptance when they mess with little kids and, and I say that's we better draw the line somewhere because that's coming that's what's coming down the pipeline and that's simply all I'm saying where do we draw the line how much how much of this absolute nonsense do we swallow okay because, you know, I'm a passionate person with somebody who truly, truly has an issue beyond their control. I get that. But I am very uh, unsympathetic to whiners. No, I'm, I'm with you. And it's, to me, it comes down to a matter of persuasion versus coercion. If, yeah. some, if somebody is coercing me to do something, uh, I'm going to push back. Yeah. You absolutely. know, if that makes me a bad person, well, so be it. But if, if you want to persuade me... Hey, I'll give you a fair hearing. I'll consider what you have to say, but man, you start twisting my arm. Um, it's it's not going to go well. Yeah, because liberty is a two way street. You know, I, I mean, my liberty ends where your, yours begins, Brian, or anybody else's begins. Now, where I draw the line with that is when you're messing around through your sexual deviancy and stuff, for example, with kids who do not have the full um, knowledge of life yet, and they're not growing up to discern things in the way that we as adults should be discerning, and uh, and you have adults who take advantage of the kids, and that's what I fear we're headed toward. I mean, I don't know how many people in the audience know there's a group called the North American Man-Boy Love Association. Oh, yeah, NAMBLA. Yeah, they're out there. And these people have been out there for quite a long time, but see, the, the landscape is beginning to become, for lack of a better word, fertile for these people to start coming out of the woodwork and demanding acceptance. Well, you accepted the transgenders. Well, you accepted this. Can we be accepted, too? You know, we're just people, too. And, and, and it all starts with we, we relax the definition of what is deviant behavior Versus what isn't. And and notice I'm saying behavior as opposed to, uh, you know, saying deviant people. Um, Behavior is is the thing that we're evaluating here, not the person. That's it. Now, they would have you to believe that because you don't like their lifestyle, well, you hate me. 
You know, and that's the oldest thing. I mean, even the Bible talks about that. Remember, because even remember Christ had words to say about that. It's it's not uh, it's not you they hate. It's me. You know, when talk about you know preaching the gospels and that kind of thing. You know, Christ even talked about that. So it's the oldest trick in the book. Well, if you don't like what I am doing, then you don't like me either. Well, how many times when you were growing, when your kids were growing up, Brian, were your kids in danger, and you told them? You know, say like, for example, don't touch that hot stove, don't mess with that hot pan on the stove or something, or you're going to burn yourself. Well, what would you say if suddenly your child said, well, you won't let me play with the stove, so therefore you don't like me. <laughs> yeah, we've we've had a few of those conversations. <laughs> I mean, come on, you know? I mean, the fact that you're willing, there's this thing out there called tough love, and we've lost we lost the meaning of what tough love is. That's well, no, I'm I'm with you, I'm with you, and and part of that means that uh, you know you have to acknowledge part of being an adult is you don't get your way all the time, and that's that's, right. that's why when people harness the power of government to to force their way on others whose peaceful behavior isn't affecting them in the slightest, you know, like uh, the baker in Colorado who said, "I'm sorry, I can't make you a." wedding cake for your same-sex wedding. I'll sell you anything I have in the shop here that's already made, but I'm not going to do a special cake for you. Um, well, we're going to bring the power of the state on you, and we're going to force you to do so. That's a thuggish move, in, in my estimation. Absolutely. Because of that business, and here we go back to the whole issue of private property, and that's something we haven't um, paid attention to either, is our private property rights are being gnawed away. See how this stuff can branch into so many areas. I mean, as a business owner, he should have a right to decide. He should even have a right, if he decides to, to discriminate against gays and uh, whatever he wants to discriminate against. Now, if he discriminates and the market decides, the free market decides that, hey, you know, we're not going to shop there, that's a different story if the free market rebels and decides they're not going to do business with the guy. But to have government come in and shut him down or fine him because he's not serving. And I'm saying this is a blind person, okay? If I go, in fact, I have been discriminated against. I had, um, I was discriminated against by a landlord when I was living up in the Chicago area who, he sounded like he was a very friendly guy when I talked to him. He's asking me about how I did things as a blind person and whatever, and I told him. And then he um, decided not to rent me. Well, wow. I didn't take him to court because, hey, you know, there may be some times where I might do something that somebody may not like, and I don't want to be taken to court either. Sam, I appreciate your example. I appreciate your call. I'm going to move on from here. Thank you so much. This is Loving Liberty. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Are you ready to laugh? Okay, let's have let's have some good satire. And, and by the way, I'm going to preface my uh, what I'm about to share here with you uh, with some comments about satire. Look, the world needs satirists, but they need people who are willing to stick their finger in the eye of those who are oh so important and who are you know of course uh, just don't find any humor in anything. Are always dour, hmm, imposing. So, uh, you know, you can go back a long ways to find uh, examples of satire. Voltaire, great satirist. Rabelais. By the way, Rabelais, if you have the great books of Western civilization as compiled by uh, Britannica, and I think it was uh, University of Chicago, 
Mortimer Adler and Robert uh, Hutchins, who uh, did the uh, compilation of this. I mean, we're talking thousands and thousands of hours of research and and uh, cross-referencing and so forth. And you read all those great books, and or you look at the titles and the different subjects of all the great books of Western civilization, the canon of Western thought, 3,300 years in the making. And then you find something like Rabelais, Gargantua, that's one of his uh, one of his stories. And, and you start to read about it and it's like, holy cow, this the potty humor and the, the just coarse, crass topic matters. You have to wonder, how did this ever make it into the great books of Western civilization? And the, the reason is because Rabelais was a satirist. He was calling attention to and in some ways he was ridiculing certain attitudes that were prevalent in his day. And rather than attack them directly, you know, rather than, do, than doing the uh, uh, Morton Downey Jr. approach, you know, and just going after him like a, like a pit bull, he did it through humor. By the way, if you want to see a really good example of what, uh, what Rabelais looks like in our time, South Park. Yeah, the crass, potty humor-filled animated series. I understand the content is, is not everybody's cup of tea, and sometimes it is downright rude and just shockingly offensive. But always, 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 there's a purpose behind it in that it is skewering some quirk or some trend or some foible of human nature that is playing out today. And as much as I don't want my kids hearing that kind of potty language, you know what? I respect the ability of the satirists who created that, that series. Now, what I'm going to share with you isn't nearly that shocking, but I'm telling you, it it's still has a wicked edge to it. This is from the Babylon Bee. Twelve manly things. Twelve obsolete manly... Opti- uh, let's try this again. Twelve obsolete manly activities and what you can replace them with. You ready for this? First obsolete manly thing, chivalry. Any idea that's been around for more than 30 years is old hat. Chivalry, if it were a hat, would be one of those stupid ruffly hats they wore in old French paintings. It is an archaic practice that assumes women can't accomplish basic tasks such as opening doors, pull seats out from tables, and walk without holding onto some man's arm. It is time to retire this tired, sexist trope that parades around pretending to be a form of respect and admit women have no need for male door charity. Okay, so we're going to put chivalry on the shelf. What will we replace it with? Instead, get a sex change and beat the tar out of women in mixed martial arts. True respect for women requires drastic body-altering measures. Instead of opening doors for women... Consider getting a sex change and opening up wounds on women's skulls in the octagon. Instead of pulling out chairs for women, pull a woman's arm out of its socket. If you want women to know you consider them equals, quit body shaming and start body slamming. I did warn you. There's a bit of a wicked edge here. (laughs) All right. Second obsolete manly thing. Helping old ladies. The ageist concept of helping old ladies cross the street, carry groceries, or use Skype has been an oppressive thorn in the side of the elderly for centuries. Men can't seem to find anyone who they think doesn't need their help, even people who have nearly nearly 100 years of experience at doing things. That's just arrogant. Instead, dox some teenagers. A true man finds kids with differing political views online and does everything within their power to destroy their pathetic little lives. 
See a kid in a MAGA hat smirking on YouTube? It's time to man up and sick the entire Internet on that impish little twerp. Find their home address, phone number, high school, Facebook page, and any other personal information, then immediately make it public. The child will be bombarded with death threats, harassment, and maybe even physical violence, and you will be overwhelmed with this true sense of accomplishment. Obsolete manly thing number three, fixing things around the house. It's common knowledge that things don't break anymore. I mean, come on. It's 2019, people. Fences last forever. Plumbing never leaks. And tools are just overpriced symbols used only for testosterone signaling. Besides, home ownership in itself is patriarchal. A true man rents a pastel yellow townhouse in a suburb with all maintenance included in the rent. Men who make their own repairs are stealing work from the lower class because they hate poor people and even worse, are racist against migrants. Instead, learn interior decorating. A real man learns how to tie a room together by picking the right throw pillows, shopping for shabby chic antiques, and repurposing old furniture using chalk paint and sandpaper. Okay, this one hit home. Obsolete manly thing number four, grilling meat. What purpose could a grill have that a microwave cannot accomplish? The grill is a tool for desperate males to labor over in an attempt to assert their relevance in a culture long past the cave times of cooking with actual fire. Besides, eating animals is murder. You want to be a real man? Eat only kale. So what do we replace grilling meat with? Well, instead, it says, grill your stupid face. If you are a male, you probably have a stupid face. If you want to grill something, grill that. For bonus points, grill your face until your lips fuse together so you'll stop all the obnoxious mansplaining, too. That's true manliness. Obsolete manly thing number five. Fighting and self-defense. Hey, macho man, ever heard of the cops? You don't need to learn to defend yourself, and the very idea that you need to defend anyone else is elitist, sexist, racist hogwash. True men don't worry about defense. They worry about offense. If you aren't actively finding things to be offended by, you don't need to defend yourself. You need to check yourself. So instead of fighting in self-defense, roundhouse kick pro-life women. If you must exert physical dominance and retain your man card, kick a woman who is so stupid she doesn't even want an abortion. That'll teach her. Even better if she's pregnant. Then you can say it was two against one. I'm sharing with you satire from the Babylon Bee. And I know that some are thinking, wow, this is kind of it's kind of on the edge there, Hyde. Be careful. And yet there's, there's a certain ring of truth, isn't there? How about this? Obsolete manly thing number six, fatherhood. It's time to retire meaningless terms like father and dad. While toxic masculinity has been on the rise, thankfully, fatherhood has been on the decline. Yeah, you take the good with the bad. It's been scientifically proven that, the child, that children are best raised by government agents or lesbians. Dads aren't just optional. They're a problem. It's time to stop messing up kids by forcing them to call some inconsequential sperm donor daddy. Instead, enjoy some casual abortion. Instead of burdening children with your male insecurity and need for control, kill them legally in clinics across the country. Real men sleep with as many women as possible without any intention to start a family, because it's well known that families are bad for the environment. Suppressing your sexuality is the worst thing you can do as a male, and modern abortion laws give men the opportunity to do pretty much the only thing they are good for, and that's impregnating women so they can discover the wonderful, life-changing experience of having an abortion. 
All right, one more. Obsolete manly thing number seven, disciplining children. Do you discipline your child? Please say yes so I can immediately call CPS on you. What is this, the dark ages? Instead, dress your children in drag and put them on TV. Is your child showing signs they may not be your stereotypical male or female? Does your son show some interest in feminine things like wearing a bracelet here or there or the color pink? immediately get that kid some hormone blockers, some lingerie, and get them dancing in a gay strip club. There's no time to lose because if you don't embrace your child's curiosity now, he or she could move on and become another cisgendered breeder. Who needs more of those? Everyone knows there's no better time in your life to lock into your sexuality than around 8 or 10 years old. By the way, the preceding was all satire. Probably should have said that at the beginning. It is only satire. Credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. All right. If I need to be taken to task, here's the chance to do it. 801-331-8113. I will be posting the uh, link to the 12 obsolete uh, male behaviors or 12 obsolete manly activities and what you can replace them with. Uh, and they'll be in the show notes. And and I would encourage you to check them out. It, I think it's pretty funny. I mean, come on, do away with cigar smoking, replace it with bra, bra burning and become a feminist. Uh, replace the obsolete manly thing of earning your living with demanding a living from the government. Replace opening pickle jars with opening borders. Replace uh, riding ATVs with contact contracting STDs. And finally, and this this I thought was such a brilliant stroke here. Partying. That's something that needs to be eliminated. Parties of any kind where males are involved are unsafe. These gatherings should have been outlawed a long time ago. Instead, join the Communist Party. Let's get right down to it. Communism. If all men would just become gender-neutral communists, all the other problems on Earth would sort themselves out. Sadly, real gender-neutral feminist communism has never been tried. (laughs) Okay, joking aside, satire aside... What happens when we have an anti-male culture? And by the way, I'm not trying to play the part of a victim here because I, frankly, I I don't care. I don't lose a lot of sleep over what feminists are saying, but um, I want you to understand I'm concerned about the attitudes that creep into the uh, corporate boardroom, that creep into uh, the the public school system, because I do still have some kids in school. And if they're being taught, well, you know, these uh, these male things are just, you know, obsolete and dangerous and outmoded. I have to wonder, what are the likely practical effects of this? Well, Jeff Minnick, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, has a couple of thoughts on this. Here's what he says, talking about the consequences of an anti-male culture. Recently, a woman read an article of his about families, the plummeting American birth rate and marriage. And this was the response he received from this reader. She said, I do find it sad that not more women are encouraged to embrace marriage and family. I have many single women friends now in their mid and late 30s who now feel the clock ticking, but have all but resigned themselves to being alone for the rest of their lives. 
Now, he says, soon after receiving her email, I stumbled across Rod Dreher's The Agony and Hope of Christian Courtship, an online article in which he discusses a column by Anna Hitchings, an Australian writer lamenting the dearth of available men who were church-going, single, and worldly-wise, with that last term meaning socially adjusted. Hitching writes that Hitchings rather writes that men seemingly do not understand what it is to be a man anymore. She then applauds figures like Jordan B. Peterson, who are actively promoting qualities that are sorely lacking in our society. Things like personal responsibility, honesty, and integrity. In his column, Dreher adds a comment by a reader by the name of Steve. Steve said, a woman asked my friend, an awesome 40-year-old man of God who wants kids and a wife, if he believed in egalitarianism versus complementarianism. And when he said the latter, she wished him a happy life. Now, I don't mean to mansplain this to anybody, but egalitarianism is all about everybody is made equal. Complementarianism doesn't require equality, but simply says, would say man, man and women have complementary roles. They don't have to be equal. They, they complement one another. So when the guy said, no, I, I take the latter one, she told him, well, have a good life. And away she went. And Steve says, that's the culture now. And that mentality has seeped into the church. So it's no wonder why women in my congregation complain men aren't asking them out. We're not interested in having to argue our worth and leadership in a relationship. Now, here Jeff Minnick says, putting aside Christianity, few today would deny that male-female relationships among young adults are fraught with suspicion, discord, false hopes, and shattered expectations. He says, I know a dozen women like Anna Hitchings who echo, who echo her sentiments, namely that they and their friends have trouble finding men who are honest, responsible, and know how to engage socially. But as Steve points out, men also face challenges in finding the right woman. And here Jeff Minnick asks, what has happened? Since the 1960s, our society has undergone a sea change regarding marriage and family. Schools find time for sex education, but not for teaching the values of partnership, commitment, and obligation. Nor does our culture endeavor to restore marriage and family, institutions once considered the building blocks of a healthy society. Today, our technology, the sexual revolution, and in some quarters, the antipathy towards men and marriage have severely damaged the nuclear family. He says, let's look at just one of these changes. The women's movement of the 1960s and 70s stressed equality of opportunity in education and the workplace. Young women were encouraged to go to college, win a degree, take their place in the workplace, and break the glass ceiling. All well and good. Unfortunately, this quest for equality has taken a different turn. Our popular culture, movies, television, children's books, has demeaned men while elevating women, an indoctrination begun in preschool. One small example, pick up almost any of the Berenstain Bear books aimed at kids three to seven years of age, and you'll find Mama Bear portrayed as flawless and wise, Papa Bear as a doofus. This propaganda occurs in movie theaters, in television shows where dad is a guy too dumb to change a light bulb. In the media, in textbooks attacking the patriarchy, and in classrooms from kindergarten through grade school. Most recently, some teachers and commentators go so far as to preach toxic masculinity, as if manhood was a piece of poisonous waste. We're raising our girls to be aggressive and independent. We're raising our boys to be, well, more like girls. In her 2017 post, 
Camille Paglia, neo-feminism teaching women to live in a permanently juvenile condition. Annie Holmquist looks at what Paglia, a feminist writer and provocateur, thinks of this second-wave feminism. What I am saying throughout my work is that girls who are indoctrinated to see men not as equals, but as oppressors and rapists, are condemned to remain in a permanently juvenile condition for life. That's Camille Paglia writing there. They have surrendered their own personal agency to a poisonous creed that claims to empower women, but is ended by infantilizing them. End quote. And Jeff Minnick says, but it gets worse by buying into this propaganda. Some women now regard females as superior to males. They engage in the tribalism endemic in our time. Like the male chauvinists of yore, they crack jokes in public about the stupidity of men, make sexist comments, or disparage males, all with no pushback. Meanwhile, men risk being accused of harassment simply for complimenting a woman on her appearance. Given such an anti-male culture, what sort of men are women expecting? As C.S. Lewis wrote in The Abolition of Man, we make men without chests and expect of them virtue and enterprise. We castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. Minnick says young adults, male and female, who are searching for love, commitment, and marriage, who want a home and children, deserve our sympathy. They are the unwitting victims of a culture whose values have gone drastically awry. And until we recognize that we're on the wrong road, these same people these same young people must expect a bumpy ride. Again, I'll post this article in the show notes for today, but let me pose a question. And this is not necessarily a rhetorical question. 801-331-8113. How do we bring some balance back into this equation? It just seems so so lopsided right now. How do we bring these values back in line with what actually works? What has stood the test of time? Now, I know it's going to sound a lot like, Brian, are you defending the patriarchy? I'm sure to some that's exactly what it sounds like what I'm doing. But more than anything, I'm just defending time-honored wisdom. And by that, you know, what I'm talking about is Look, what, what is traditionally across societies, religious and non-religious, primitive or very advanced, what is the pattern that has proven to provide the greatest stability in which to raise offspring? To my thinking, it's the permanent relationship between a man and a woman. They're the two necessary components in order to create that offspring in the first place, You have to have a male and female component there. But that permanent relationship, a relationship that requires fidelity, that's what holds men accountable for their behavior, particularly their sexual behavior, and causes them to focus that energy and to focus that drive in a positive direction. When you have a family to take care of, when you have the expectation that you have people depending on you to do the right thing, just like we talked about with Eric Peters in the very first segment of the show, we tend to either rise or fall according to those expectations. On the other hand, if all we're really here for is just to pursue pleasure in whatever form without any thought of consequences or accountability, 
How can you blame somebody for walking away from vows? How can you blame somebody for just being a, you know, raunchy philanderer? There's some real wisdom that we're uh, missing out on here. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. Man, I feel like I've been all over the road today. Like I've got my hands handcuffed behind my back and I'm, I'm driving, steering with my feet. Yeah, through a school zone. <laughs> Thankfully, school is out. Anyway, I apologize if, if this is hard to follow, but I am uh, I'm thankful for all the abundance of information and content that is out there uh, for the purpose of getting us thinking. And here's a great article that uh, was published on the Foundation for Economic Education site, The Price of Trading Future Obligations for Today's Benefits. This actually fits very well with a couple of things we've discussed. Um, we talked about yesterday about, you know, uh, for instance, tearing down the, the Confederate statues and, and erasing the founders from, you know, our, our history books. I thought about that as I read this article because the the synopsis here says we can't reach back to the past to ask for the guilty to restore what they took. By the way, I'm not accusing the founders of anything, but we can decide what to do with the world we now have. Benjamin J. Thompson is the author here. He says, I've been listening to Mark Spitznagel's The Tao of Capital, which is three parts philosophy, two parts history and one part investing advice. So he says, if you're into that sort of thing and you don't mind the same concept hammered home in a dozen different examples across multiple categories, you will love this book. In the chapter about the concept of time preference, he uses a striking turn of phrase when talking about the reality of our future selves and distant descendants. Here's the quote from the book. The symptoms of this affliction referring to our culture's extreme focus on the now at the expense of the future, can be found in the chronically low savings rate in our culture, ranging from financial to even fresh water, soil, and of course, forests. And analogously and most incredibly, governmental fiscal, de- governmental fiscal deficits that deviously and increasingly rob future generations, our helpless intergenerational forward selves. End quote. Now, this is a topic I've brought up before. I still believe that uh, Thomas Jefferson's letter, I can't remember which friend he was sending this to, but it's if you Google Earth is for the living, Thomas Jefferson, you can find a copy of the complete text of this letter. And, and the gist of what he's getting at here is it is expressly immoral for a generation to incur debts that it cannot pay off within its lifetime. In other words, to saddle unborn generations with debts that they had absolutely no say whatsoever in choosing whether or not to undertake those debts. Now, some people kind of bristle at this. That sounds like you're trying to get out of your obligations. But, um, you know, show me the contract I signed. (laughs) Show me where where I actually agreed. Yes, I want to take on this debt that has been racking up for so many years. And you look at the look at the amount of the national debt, 22 trillion. At least that's that's the official number that's on the books. But the promises that have been made for future payments that have yet to be made could be as much as 10 times that. Can you even get your mind around 200 plus 
trillion dollars? I can't. It's, it's astronomical. And the worst part about it is you and I really didn't have a say in the matter. We elected people who went to Congress who, you know, ostensibly had a say in the matter, but why haven't they done anything? Why did they continue to kick the can down the road? Because they figure some future generation can deal with it. And they're right. Some future generation will deal with it. Isn't it immoral, though, to do that? Let me move on here. Going back to uh, Benjamin uh, J. Thompson's article, he talks about the moral duty for financial responsibility. And he says, the first time I ran into this concept of a human being as a continuous being, simultaneously real across the span of his lifetime, was when reading about Kurt Vonnegut's uh, Tralfamadorians in Slaughterhouse-Five. They perceive time as existing all at once. In the book, this produced a kind of passive, fatalistic philosophy. Since all that will be already is, there was no room for the idea of free will. Now, he says, I don't take that view, but the image from the book of viewing time and people in it, the way you might look at a stretch of the Rocky Mountains, their past and future selves, just as real as the present one, stopped me in my tracks. It put the present, which always dominates our perceptions and emotions, into a new perspective. It echoes something Einstein used to say about looking at past and future as equally and simultaneously real with the present. This is in a section, a section where Spitznagel credits Austrian economist Eugene von bohm bawerk with noticing this truth and applying it to economics, and his choice of the word helpless really leaped out at me. It's a word that for me instantly conjures images of the downtrodden people who it is our moral duty to help. Suddenly, the ideas of saving, investing wisely, delaying gratification, sacrificing in the now for something better later becomes more than just a strategy for self-gratification for the farsighted. It is a moral duty to a future self and to future others. People every bit as real as you are right now, but whose condition is completely at your mercy. The idea is not so foreign to those who speak a language like Japanese or Chinese, where the verbs make no distinction between past, present, and future. But for those of us raised on English, focusing more on the canoe than on the river when thinking about this time, thinking about time rather, this may be a jarring insight. So let's talk about studying trade-offs. Benjamin Johnson says anyone wishing to change the world through politics has a duty to understand economics. As arcane as some may try to make it, economics is really just the study of naturally occurring trade-offs. It is a pair of binoculars we can use to survey the landscape of humanity's struggle against the material world to grow and thrive. The better we can see, the better we can navigate in that realm. Those who don't will often do what seems right, but actually leads to destruction. In this case, economist Boehm Bawerk was right about the importance of time. Would-be reformers like some of the Democratic 2020 hopefuls would do well to pay attention to it. The systems we create today need to avoid creating crises later. Human affairs are unpredictable, but not hopelessly so. Through economics, we can actually spot errors, learn from them, and plan to avoid them. We today are the children of generations that traded future obligations for present benefits. Borrowing to make finance payments, 
instituting a monetary system that slowly bleeds the value out of cash savings in order to boost the present buying power of the state. And the list goes on. We live in a time of incomprehensible abundance, and yet the young feel as if they have to build their lives on very thin margins. Part of this, according to Robert Kiyosaki, is a failure to pass down financial wisdom. But there's also been a failure to respect the sanctity of our future selves and our distant descendants, all of whom are every bit as real as you are right now, even if they are not yet visible. We cannot reach back to the past to ask for the guilty to restore what they took, but we can decide what to do with the world that we have now. According to Albert and Eugen, that future already exists. The people in it depend on us in the here and now to act in their interest. No one else can. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that's, that is possibly the deepest thought that I am likely to have today. What am I doing right now? In the present, where I actually have some control over what's happening. I can't change the past. I'm not a time traveler. I can't go into the future. But I can definitely affect the future by the kind of story that I am writing today by my actions. And it's not just about me. I don't know about you, but that's, uh, I feel a real actual mantle of responsibility kind of settle on my shoulders here. As I think about the generations that follow me. Now, look, I have six kids. I find great joy in them. I find great joy in my grandson. But sometimes I think I, I feel a little bit detached in the sense that, well, you know, they have their own lives to live, their own decisions to make. And maybe I discount how much my own decisions today can affect them even though they have their own free will and they have their own ability to, to make their own choices. I mean, it's already affected, you know, the world in which they, they were raised. Something to ponder, for sure. I mean, I'm not telling you, go find some breathtaking point of inspiration and sit and think on these things. But I wonder if you and I might order our lives, or at least how we, how we choose to do what we choose to do on a daily basis a little bit differently. If we were thinking about how might this affect those who will follow in my footsteps. I'm going to give it some more thought. If it rings the right bells with you, I'd say maybe you should consider that as well. Thanks for joining us. This is Loving Liberty. Credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.